Welcome to the Jason Timp Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your evening to come hang out and talk some basketball with us. I'm super excited. Tonight we have Roz. As you guys know him as at Unwritten Rules on Twitter. He is one of my favorite guys to bring on to talk Lakers because he has a lot more time than I to do, or at least he's willing to devote a lot more time to watch a lot of the in-depth film. And he can bring a lot of perspective that most of us don't, you know, have the time to really build. And uh, um, so I'm really excited to have him on to bring his expertise. We're just going to dive into all things about the Laker offseason today. And uh, um, you're going to hear a lot of optimism from Raj and I, I would imagine, because I think we're naturally optimistic people, but also there's a lot to be optimistic about with this Laker team. And I think uh, before we get started, I want to talk real quick about why I think we should be so optimistic. And it starts with what happened with the Laker team last year. Because as I've said several times on Twitter over the last couple of weeks, the 2020 Lakers were one of the most dominant basketball teams of this century. They uh, started the season 24 and three. Think about how crazy that is to start the season 24 and three at one point. They finished the season at a 64 win pace. They were the fourth best offense in the league and the third best defense in the league going into the bubble. They finished the season with the best record among all NBA teams against winning teams, against teams at 500 or better. And then they got into the, into the playoffs, and they only lost five games. They were never truly threatened. Even in the series where they got pushed to six, they just absolutely obliterated the Miami Heat. They were one of the most dominant teams, not only in the history of the league, but in, in this modern era with, with as much depth of talent as there is from top to bottom. And I think one of the main reasons why there was so much pessimism surrounding the team basically stemmed from two things. They dropped an early game against the Clippers where they posted up AD every time. And then they dropped an early game or a Christmas Day game against the Clippers where they had a pretty big fourth quarter lead that they blew at the end with some foul calls that went one way and and uh, just missing a couple shots. And then they lost that game at the end of the road trip against the Bucks. And then there was the seeding games, which were weird. They There were no fans, so there was no adrenaline for the players to feed off of. They had absolutely nothing to play for. They had locked down anything that they needed with seeding. There was no legitimate reason for them to be the best version of themselves, and they went three and five. And most importantly, they couldn't score which completely changed the whole you know, perception of that team because it made everybody think they were a bad offensive team, even though they were the fourth best offense all season long. And, and, and during that seeding game, they were st- that seeding stretch, they were still defending. So I say all that to say this. The reason why we're going to be so excited in this podcast for how good this Laker team can be is because they already were one of the most dominant teams that we've seen in this modern era. And they legitimately got better, in my opinion, on both ends of the floor. And so I think that I think that that's the important thing is to kind of confront some of that weird, illogical pessimism that surrounded last year's Laker team that was never really based in reality because they were good from start to finish. I I was tweeting pretty recklessly about them back in October, and I know you felt the same way about that. But, yeah, I mean, do do you agree with me? Do you think that uh, do you think I'm overreacting a little bit? No, I think you're right. I think like there were times last year where you kind of had to convince me because there were times where like they would lose a game and I'd be like, oh my God, what's happening? And then you would go on like a rant, like 
dude, they're okay. They're, they've just won like 10 in a row. Like it's okay to lose one game. So I think you're right. Um, and the dominance level, I forget, like, because you remember the losses way more than the wins in a weird way. Like I remember exactly losing that home game to Dallas that they lost when Luca went off at home. But then you forget like they won like 14 in a row or some crazy amount. And yeah, 16 and five in the playoffs is nothing to joke about. And they're like the first team to win without any home court, right? They won the, they won the championship with zero home court advantage. Now, they didn't have to go on the road at all either, but that's a pretty big deal. So this year they get home court. Um, I think they've got a, a much better roster, a more balanced roster around this team now. Um, obviously, chemistry was a big deal from last year. We'll see how that um, kind of correlates to this year. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think they were a dominant team last year, and they've improved. I mean, you can't deny that they haven't improved um, this team. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, obviously, when you win the ch- championship, you have the right to be positive. And you're going to obviously go into next season with a lot of – uh, positive feelings on it it's hard to do and i think i think one of the things that i always tell people when they're dealing when they're trying to cope with regular season losses because especially i remember when i was younger when i was in my teens and i was watching a game where i had a rooting interest whether it was the the arizona wildcats or whether i was watching you know lebron when he was playing with the Cavs, they lose a game and i had to keep i, I would constantly just kind of just be devastated by it even in like march which never made any sense and it's funny because you think about like if I told you that an NBA team was going to win 60 games, you would think, oh, that's a dominant basketball team. That's a bona fide championship contender, you know? Right. But if a team, by, like, just by a simple matter of math, if a basketball team loses or wins 60 games in a regular season, that means they have to lose 22 times. So right. think about that. Like, that's crazy. You're losing at that rate, you're basically losing once a week. Like, that, that's it. That's insane. So, I think it's important to always kind of keep that perspective and understand that even the warts that popped up for the Lakers, the warts like dropping those couple games to the Clippers, dropping that game to the Bucks, having some, you know, that I think they lost four games in a row at one point where things got a little rough there. But you have to remind yourself and go like, it's not like there's a team out there that's perfect. Right. You know, there isn't yeah. a 2017 Warriors, your outlier contender that's so different from any traditional season. All these teams are struggling. And that was what was so weird about it is the the Lakers would have this pessimism surrounding them. And it's like, have you watched the Clippers? They're getting their butts kicked by bad teams and they don't like each other. And there's all this bad body language and all their guys are in and out of the lineup. And it's like, how is that getting, you know, glossed over for their sake, but being completely, you know, like having this big flashlight shined on it for the sake of the Lakers. And I never really understood, understood the logic behind that. Um, but yeah, so let's let's get started with uh, what I think is the first really interesting, you know, the, like structural thing surrounding the Lakers. And it stems from that interview that we had with uh, Dennis Schroeder in his inaugural press conference with the Lakers, where he basically kind of came out and publicly said, I plan on being the starter. OK, like and, and it wasn't like necessarily super uh, uh, kind of it wasn't very, you know, uh, um, modest. It was, no. it was very like intentional, it seemed wasn't low key at all right exactly <laughs> and so so let's assume that that's that whole dynamic to me makes the 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 starting lineup dynamic interesting for the lakers because for starters you can throw alex caruso out the window as a starter which is crazy because arguably their most dominant performance last year was with alex caruso in the starting lineup so we set him right. aside so there are seven names in my opinion that can be considered for a starting shot, a starting spot. There's LeBron and Anthony Davis. There's KCP. Mm-hmm. There's Wesley Matthews. There's Dennis Schroeder, who threw his name in the hat, and I probably wouldn't have put it there before he said that. Right. Uh, Marcus Saul and Montrezl Harrell. Mm-hmm. So 
LeBron and AD have to, right? You're thinking mm-hmm. Contavious Caldwell-Pope probably has to. Why? Because he started a lot of last season and you just paid him a lot of money, you know? So the reality is, is like, it doesn't make necessary. It doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense to have him coming off the bench. So that leaves Wes, Dennis, Mark and Trez fighting for those last two spots. So my first question for you is, what do you think the Lakers starting lineup will look like? And then follow that up with whether or not you agree with that concept or if you would have a, if you would change anything about it. I mean, I just to speak on the like Schroeder thing, like I think it's great that he wants to be a starter. Um, we obviously aren't in the room with his agent, with Palinka, with, you know, LeBron and AD or whoever got to talk to him and promised a starting spot or didn't. I just think it's, I don't think it's, like normal for a guard who's coming from another team to come to a championship team and demand to be a starter. I think that's a little strange. I still would be surprised if he's starting on opening night. Um, Like, I think you can go ask Trez, like, do you want to be a starter? He's going to be like, hell yeah, I want to be a starter. Like, (laughs) what what kind of question is that? Like, so, I mean, I'm not sure if it was asked directly, but I mean, I'm sure he doesn't want to come off the bench anymore. That's understandable. The dude's a competitor, right? He averaged 18 points a game on a fifth seed last year i'm sure he believes he can start but i still think um that starting lineup is going to go with uh kcp i think he's earned it his uh playoffs performances um has gotten him in that lineup and i just think you want to keep as much like uh chemistry as was last year um just to keep it uh keep the continuity right like i think west matthews fills perfectly for danny green they are very similar players um i think Wes is a little better defender on the ball. But anyways, they're, they're both kind of 3 and D players. And then Marcus Gasol fits perfectly with JaVale, and then you can keep that playoff bubble team together with KCP, LeBron, and AD. And then that bench unit can build their own continuity, right? Because last year was kind of erratic. You had a regular season Rondo trying to play with Kuzma, who was doing his thing. And then you had Caruso coming in trying to get minutes. It was a little bit erratic and anyway through the season. So I think you're right. I think those are the spots. Obviously, LeBron and AD are locked in. I would think Trez is going to come off the bench. Um, I think Schroeder is going to eventually come off the bench to start. He's still going to get his starter minutes, though, and his his minutes next to LeBron and AD, but that's kind of how I see it going. How about you? That's the, that's the important detail. And so for the record, like uh, I had it, I've, I've, I know what this experience is like when I was playing at Arizona Christian university, I started the season as a starter. It's a totally different vibe than my junior college years. Like in junior college, I was an all conference player. I was had all these big scoring numbers. They were relying heavily on me to be an offensive creator. And then I was playing with two All-American guards. You know, and in the, the NAIA is all weird. Like, you, they have weird age rules. So our guards were 29 and 31 years old playing college basketball, you know, and I was 22. And, you know, I'm trying to fit in with these two, like, big alpha personalities that have been around the game forever. And uh, I was like a Trevor Ariza type role on that team. All I did was guard the other team's best player and spot up in the, in the corner and shoot threes while these guards took all these dribbles. And while it's one thing to buy into that role from the standpoint of, you know, being unselfish, it's another thing with the way that it can affect your rhythm. And I genuinely remember like that process. I was a starter my entire college career. I started every game in junior college. I started like the first 20 games of the season when I was at Arizona Christian university. And then all of a sudden they were like, we had a, a backup three. He was a all, he was an all conference player the season before. And he was older. He was, I think he was like 28 years old. And the coach basically just came to me and he says, Hey, we're going to start with Jordan and we're going to have you come in off the bench. That way you can be a bit more aggressive, blah, 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 all this stuff. But the reality is, is like coming off the bench is hard. You, you go through this intense warm up before the game, you're going through layup lines. You're all jazzed up. There's a crowd. You're, you know, jumping out of your out of the gym, and then all of a sudden, it's like I'm sitting, 
And not only that, but it's like eating at you because you're just watching other guys play when you feel like you should be out there. And so I, I sympathize with the uh, with with the plight of what Dennis is talking about. Right. The flip side of it is, though, is his role is different. His role on this team is to be aggressive with the basketball. So in the starting lineup, it's foolish to have Dennis be super aggressive with the basketball. It doesn't actually make a lot of sense from a basketball IQ standpoint for what they're trying to do in those minutes. Because in those minutes when LeBron and AD are on the floor, everything needs to be flowing through them as much as you can because they're two of the top three or four players in the entire world. So that's just a smarter that's just a smarter basketball IQ approach to the game. It's not we're not benching Dennis for the sake of 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 trying to, you know, uh, like parse out who's the best player on the team. It's just actually if we have you check in with five minutes to go in the first quarter, we can have you come in and be super aggressive and not have to worry about deferring to LeBron and Anthony Davis. So that that's the reasoning why I didn't like that sort of approach. It shows me that Dennis is kind of worried about the wrong things. That said, even if they do start Dennis, they can work it out just by quickly benching either LeBron or AD. And I think you'll see that a lot, especially as you're dealing with LeBron trying to load manage. But I think the clear, obvious answer for the starting lineup is to go KCP and Wes, because Wes is a perfect starter because he doesn't need touches. Uh, He locks up. He's a ball pressure guy. He can set the tone defensively. And then uh, same thing with Marcus Gasol. Marcus Gasol, because he's just going to be a high IQ player who's not who's not overly aggressive. He's perfect in the starting lineup. And then you bring in Trez and Dennis, and you say it's your time. Just go get him. But right. if if they insist on starting Dennis, which I believe they will, which will lead to Dennis, KCP, LeBron, AD, Marcus Gasol, then you're going to have to do some quirky stuff with your rotations to quickly get either LeBron and AD out or AD out to get, uh, uh, um, uh, to get Dennis the ball more because he's right. going to basically be spotting up in some of those minutes. So that would be my one concern. Yeah. And the thing also, I think there's enough playmaking between Marcus Gasol and LeBron in that starting lineup to where I don't think you need an extra passer there. Um, I think Dennis is the best, as you said, on the ball, attacking off ball screens, um, getting downhill. That's a little more tougher when he's like standing on a weak side corner waiting for, you know, the help to come down from a LeBron drive or, you know, AD um, flashing to the rim, things like that. So obviously they can work well together. I just think, his skill set kind of matches more with that second unit. And it's still kind of strange to me like that, uh, that he would just come in and demand to be a starter and they would just like, you know, give him that. Like, I just think that's earned, that's earned on the court, right? If he's averaging like 20 points a game and six assists off in his like 25, 30 minutes and yeah, start him. Like if he's demanding to start, then you start in the basketball show if he needs to start or not. He, he doesn't need to demand it, you know, day one of training camp, I think is kind of strange for a team that, that just dominated their way, like you said in the intro, to a championship. Um, this guy coming off, you know, a five seed off the bench is just weird, you know. Just no, you're, you're right. It's, it's about optics. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, dude, like I feel I'd have so much more respect for you if you felt that way and you just kept it in-house. But I mean, right. like, it's the thing, and this is what is important that you're bringing to the table, Raj, and what drives me nuts about so many fans is like it's a you can be a Lakers optimist and be honest about the things that you're seeing, and right. like as much as I I love the Dennis acquisition, we're going to talk more about what he does for the offense and for the defense. But it's okay to acknowledge like yeah, I wasn't I didn't love what he said in the press conference. Like it wasn't exactly. ideal, you know. Especially talking about a team that had such great chem, such great chemistry. 
And we just dealt with this with JaVale McGee with all the reports we had about how much he cared about starting. And it's like, and then now we're all of a sudden throwing him into the fire in the Western Conference Finals to get absolutely (laughs) cooked by Jokic, you know? So I think that I'd prefer to see the egos checked at the door. But it's, you can, even if he is privately insisted on it, you can still make it work. And and maybe that's what it is, is trying to make him happy long-term so that he's, you know, more committed to the franchise. But it's all going to work out. Yeah, for sure. So let's dig into some of the fun stuff that I think you in particular can be super helpful for. So um, I, as I mentioned earlier in the show, the Laker offense was one of the best offenses in the league last year that got completely glossed over um, because of the bubble games. And Zach Lowe presented some data and he was including data from the bubble games for the record. But he basically pointed out that most of the Laker offensive success came in transition. Right. And that uh, that they struggled a little bit in the half court. Now, what, like I said, he was including games from the bubble. So it's difficult to manage that uh, that kind of uh, expectation from what we saw in, in when they were more engaged. Um, and the reality is, is scoring in transition is still offense. It's not like, like the Lakers scored a lot in transition in the playoffs. Game six of the NBA Finals was a track meet. Uh, they were strangling the heat and then running out for layups and dunks on the other end. So it's not like that's not real offense. That said, I, I understand some of the concern there. And I think a lot of it stemmed from spacing issues. And the spacing issues stemmed from a lot of Rondo minutes and a lot of JaVale McGee and a lot of Dwight Howard. So what I want to start with is let's talk about uh, specifically with the starting lineup to start. How, do, how does having Mark Gasol out there instead of a JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard completely change the way that the Lakers play offense to start games? Yeah, it's everything, man. Because like, you could see when the Lakers started games, um, it would be really clunky, clunky, even though they have LeBron and AD. Um, you just have two bigs in the paint right away um, starting your offense on, and you'll have JaVale in the dunker spot usually. And teams just can just sit there and wait for LeBron to drive, AD to drive. And just dare the shooters to kind of hit a little bit contested shots, but now Marcus All he operates on the top of the key. Um, he'll never hit. He'll never miss a guy that's going off a back cut. He'll never miss like a good back screen, or he'll always hit you right in the right in the place. And like he can really play make um, and help, and even find LeBron on back cuts. And it can it can allow LeBron and AD, uh, AD and LeBron to kind of work off each other as well. Um, they can screen for each other, and uh, Marcus All can find him. And just have another playmaker out there so that you're not just running LeBron ISOs to or AD ISOs or um, po- AD post-ups. You can LeBron, you can run LeBron, Marcus Gasol action, and they have to respect him out there. I know his uh, three-point shooting kind of collapsed in the bubble. I think it was like at 30, 32% or something like that. But I think he still shot like 38% as a whole before the bubble. Um, he's respected out there, even though he's a little bit slower foot. He's not the same guy he was, but he's still the amazing passer. He still has the IQ. Um, and he's, it's going to open up everything, having a spacer along with AD out there. We saw it with like Markeith Morris, right? When you have Markeith Morris and AD out there, mm-hmm. how much space that just gives AD to work down low. Now imagine like that guy's now seven foot, that guy's now a great passer and you don't really lose much in terms of rim protection and you can still go big and keep that identity. I know you talked about that a lot, the Lakers identity last year. You can still kind of keep that big identity while also opening up the offensive floor. Yeah, so I 100% agree. Like, I think I think spacing uh, is part of it. Like, obviously, having a, a center who can shoot opens up a lot of things. First of all, 
Anthony Davis spent half of the season last year posting up with a big in the dunker spot, which is just right. extremely difficult to do because when a big is in the dunker spot, just natural shell spacing allows the opponent's uh, the opponent center to sit right under the basket and to not get a defensive three second call. So it completely messes up your spacing. It forced Anthony Davis to be hesitant in a lot of those positions and take a whole lot of turnaround jump shots and things that were a little bit more finesse and less power. Which, for the record, is fine when you're Anthony Davis because he's so good. But you can see him potentially have a lot more success as a to-the-basket post-up score when you've got Marcus Gasol spacing from the three-point line. Specifically with his three-point shooting, I know there's been a lot of talk about his uh, postseason performance. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, he only played what uh, he played – the Raptors Celtics series went to game seven. seven. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they swept the first round. So he played 11 playoff games and, right. and he was really good in a larger sample size in the regular season. So theoretically in the, with the Lakers, with the, with the probability of him making a deep playoff run. And honestly, just because of the, the, the Toronto never had the level of offensive creators to generate the quality of looks that Marcus Saul is going to get playing alongside Le- LeBron and Anthony Davis. It's going to be a different level in that regard. So I think like just strictly from a spacing standpoint, it opens things up for LeBron driving. It opens up things for Anthony Davis as a post-up threat. And most importantly, uh, it just quality of looks are going to help Marcus Saul generate right. easy points for himself. But then there's a second element to that. And it's, it's just the basketball IQ is so much more complicated than people realize. It's not just about like, uh, it's not just about like uh, learning how to channel your aggression or being in the right spot at the right time on defense. Like a lot of spacing is about like being in the right spot, uh, like shifting your body when you need to kind of naturally by instinct to help create openings. It's it's like kind of uh, just on a whim setting a screen at the right time. It's cutting at, uh, instinctually at the right time was something that Alex Crusoe was so good at. Like yeah. Alex Crusoe had so many offensive limitations, but he was a high IQ basketball player, which just makes it a lot easier in the half court generate like these little tiny openings that can help you over the course of the game, generate baskets. And that's a huge yeah. part of the Marcus all experience. Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee. I, I, I specifically with Dwight Howard, I thought he was a big uh, impact player for the Lakers last year. I thought they should have found a way to bring him back. And that's an entirely different topic that we've all discussed right. at length. But Dwight Howard is not a high IQ offensive basketball player. So he's a high IQ defensive basketball player, but he's not a high IQ offensive basketball player. He struggled a little bit with what I'm talking about as it pertains to Marcus Hall, being in the right spot at the right time, cutting at the right time, flaring at the right time, finding that open spot, on the perimeter where you think LeBron will find you or where the opening will be. All that stuff I think is important. And then you talked about with his, uh, there's this whole other element to the offense that they can run um, in the possessions where LeBron and AD are either resting while on the court or off the court. And that's just his basketball cue as a passer, getting them the yeah. ball at the high post, getting the ball in a position where when you have guys like Caruso, Montres Harrell on the floor, you can get them cutting into into specific spots on the floor where Marcus All can find them. I think he completely opens things up on that end. Right, and it's no accident that Alex Caruso like is one of the best guys to play next to LeBron James. Right, it's because of his really high IQ. And then you pair that now with Marcus All, who's another just super high IQ guy. Imagine those two guys now working together. I think that's the best. I don't know. You could. I mean, I think it's debatable, but it's probably the best passing front court in the league if you kind of put um, Gasol and LeBron together. Um, just imagine those two sure. finding each other. 
uh, finding LeBron going on a back. How many times would LeBron cut and like no one would throw him the lob when he would like have the lob? And, you know, he would go back to the corner or something like that with his hands back and try to catch and isolate again. So Marcus would never miss you on those kind of cuts. Toronto kind of lived off that. Toronto wasn't as talented either, but they'll lift off those cuts and those back backdoor screens. I think he's going to help Kuzma and Crusoe a lot on there. He's a massive improvement to the collective basketball IQ of the Lakers. Right. And, and I don't think that can be overstated, especially when, like, I don't know how many times we have to see in NBA history basketball IQ win games at, at the highest levels of playoff basketball, whether it was watching the Spurs for years or watching right. – Watching teams that have famously been called old all year long suddenly become the best teams when when the when the uh, you know late round playoff series uh, uh, you know are being fought and I think that that I think that that sort of thing is like again you know uh, the the Lakers because they had so much youth and athleticism with some of the other moves that they made mm-hmm. the Marcus All infusion is a super good a super you know uh, worthwhile risk in my opinion because you're not right. sacrificing your overall athleticism and age of the team. You're bringing in a savvy veteran player that uh, in, into a situation where his strengths can be emphasized instead of his weaknesses. Right. So let's, let's uh, uh, shift forward in the game now to end of the first quarter, early second quarter type of stretch where now you have Montrez and, uh, and Dennis Schroeder on the floor. In this case, you're looking at a lineup where it's probably going to be some combination of, Montrez Harrell, uh, Anthony Davis, um, uh, Dennis Schroeder, Wes Matthews, maybe a Kyle Kuzma in there. Mm-hmm. But that's going to be the type of lineup that you're working with. Offensively, how do you see that uh, that lineup working to find baskets? Yeah, man, it's exciting. I mean, after watching you know regular season Rondo um, try to isolate or run ball screens that go nowhere, that create no advantage, as you would say a lot, um, now you get Schroeder and Montrez Harrell with – I'm assuming Anthony Davis will play in the second unit next to Harrell to kind of take take off his defensive uh, deficiencies. And you can have those two run screen and roll. You can have AD and um, Schroeder run pick and roll and have like Kuzma in the corner or Marquise Morris and Caruso cutting. I, I think it's just going to be beautiful. Those two, that unit kind of play their own basketball. I think it'll be a lot faster than the starting lineup. Gasol obviously isn't going to try to get out and run too much. So um, I expect that unit to just run up and down. Shooter's one of the fastest guards in the league. I think um, just uh, having the basketball, um, being able to speed up and down. And Harrell likes to run. He has a huge motor, um, so he's going to just keep driving to the rim. And I think those two are going to score a lot. They Those were two 18-points-a-game scorers um, off the bench last year. I, th- I think they can do the same thing here, um, playing next to LeBron or AD, depending on how Vogel wants to play it. But I think they're going to get a lot of baskets. Um, and, yeah, you can see last year, like, when the bench would come in, we would kind of struggle, right? Those numbers, um, people would attack AD a lot because they would say the numbers when LeBron sits um, were still a negative, right? I think the Lakers were, like, negative point something with uh, LeBron off the bench last year. Um, that kind of flipped in the bubble. Um, but uh, I think uh, this will help a lot. Um, somehow Rob got the two six-man-of-the-year candidates to, to join this championship team, um, filling both of the holes. I thought backup point guard was, like, the number one hole to fill. He filled that in before free agency even began. So, yeah, I think this bench is going to have a no no trouble <laughs> getting points up um, uh, going forward. Yeah, I agree. So I think, I think the first thing that's interesting from uh, the standpoint of what Dennis Schroeder had to deal with in Oklahoma City is he was spending a lot of time with 
you know, Darius Baisley, who's spending a lot of time with, you know, Steven Adams. He was dealing with some spacing issues that he won't necessarily have to deal with with the bench lineup for the Lakers. So uh, theoretically, let's pretend it's Dennis Schroeder, Wes Matthews, Kyle Kuzma, Anthony Davis, and Montrezl Harrell. First of all, you can run pick and roll with Anthony Davis. Forget about Trez for a second. You can literally run pick and roll with Anthony right. Davis, which is going to generate more opening for him than he's ever experienced in his career as a, as a pick and roll ball handler. Then in the scenario where you're running pick and roll with Montrez Harrell, you've got Anthony Davis, Kyle Kuzma, and Wes Matthews on the perimeter. So you can't help anywhere in that mix. And right. you're, you're just giving him a little bit more flexibility to, uh, um, to turn what is one of the more gifted role men in the NBA. Because, you know, uh, I think it was, I can't remember who it was that was tweeting out uh, Montrez's measurables the other day. But one of the big reasons at his height that he's so effective around the basket is he has super, super long arms. And he's a right. super high standing reach. If I'm not mistaken, his standing reach and his wingspan are both uh, higher and longer than Bam Adebayo's, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So Montrez brings a lot of length around uh, around the basket offensively. Big hands, he can catch everything. I had a uh, uh, Brett Dawson, who's a friend of mine who, who's been covering the Oklahoma City Thunder for a long time. He said that uh, when he was watching Dennis play in Oklahoma City, he was frequently frustrated with how uh, with the stone hands that the bigs had there. And it made him uh, it made him less of a willing passer in the sense that he just was a little bit hesitant to throw the ball to guys who didn't know what to do with it when they got it. Or maybe they couldn't catch it to begin with. That's not a problem you're going to have with Anthony Davis and with Montrez Harrell. So I think it definitely brings out, you know, uh, what could be the best uh, uh, out of Dennis Schroeder. And then the other thing with him. You know, he's a more aggressive jump shooter, which I think is important because Ron, the Rondo jump shooting experience was such a roller coaster. Right. There were days where he was confident and he was firing away and it really opened things up for their offense. But for every night like that, there was a night where he was either completely unwilling to take them or he was bizarrely super aggressive and not making anything. And yeah. so it was, it was such a roller coaster in that regard. There, Schroeder, you know, there's been some talk about how before last season he wasn't a great jump shooter and right. whether or not last season was an outlier. But the reality of the situation is, is even like the worst case scenario for Schroeder as a jump shooter uh, this season would be better than what they were dealing with with Rondo. Right. So I think, like, I, think the, I think the Dennis Schroeder uh, uh, jump shooting is not really a concern to me. And most importantly, his aggressiveness will open things up. Uh, in that regard and then the the other thing with Trez that I think is interesting is he brings he brings an interesting wrinkle uh, uh, against switching defenses I know a lot of people have talked to death his ability to uh, to victimize post mismatches so you you, you run some sort of screen and roll you know LeBron's tired or Schroeder's tired they've been aggressive in previous possessions and they get the switch but they don't really have the legs to blow by the center well, you can dump it down to Trez and he can get you a basket against an undersized defender. That, that's been talked to death. But one of the big ones, in my opinion, that hasn't been talked about enough is the pressure that Montrez can put on the basket as an offensive rebounder against switching defenses. Yeah. So you have Dennis Schroeder come up the floor. Montrez is being guarded by, you know, Vicha uh, Zubac or some, something like that and gets a screen, gets Dennis switched onto him. And Dennis is feeling uh, feisty. Uh, he's given him all sorts of space and he settles for a jump shot and he, and he misses it. Well, in that scenario, you can pretty much count on Montrez Harrell, like diving to the rim. If he's got Lou Williams on him in this case, or some uh, Red Jackson or whoever the guard was that was guarding uh, uh, Schroeder diving to the basket, pushing them underneath the rim, 
getting an offensive rebound and putting it back up and in. That was one of the things that I noticed the most with Montrezl Harrell that was kind of glossed over last year is that three points. That's free points because that's, that is in the scenario where Dennis Schroeder or LeBron are making those jump shots, you're getting made jump shots. And then there's a certain percentage of them that are not being, uh, uh, that the jump shot, the jumpers are being missed. Montrez is converting those into a certain amount of points per possession as well. So I thought that those are the, the things that make me the most excited uh, about, about him in that regard. And we always look at it like, what could the free agent do for us, right? We look at who we had add, like what can Schroeder do for us, Harold do for us. <laughs> but like Schroeder last year, I was looking at the numbers. He played 90% of his minutes next to a traditional five in Steven Adams or Nerlens Noel. 90% of his minutes. That means like he had no space at the rim, right? Those guys are just lob, lob dunk guys. You have to pass it right in the paint. Adams has a little bit of a post game, but he's not a guy you're really throwing it down low to um, to get baskets. Now you have him playing with Anthony Davis and uh, his jump shoot game. I know people like to talk about the three-pointer. I'm more interested in the mid-range pull-up. Um, having a guy who can hit that shot next to AD just opens the world up. I mean, we saw... Rondo would drive and people would just give him that little lane, right? That little no man's land where um, bigs won't come out too. Um, but guards need to be able to hit that shot in today's today's game to open things up. And Schroeder has that. Um, and I think him playing next to AD will open him up. Um, and obviously it will help AD as well. If AD's hitting that mid-range jumper, then I'm not sure how you really defend that at that point. And obviously Harrell, um, he obviously, he played the five a lot, which I thought was out of position a little bit last year, especially defensively. Um, I thought Doc had him on bigs that just didn't make sense. Obviously, the Denver series, he was on Jokic for probably way too long. Um, now he gets to play on fours. I think he's his quickness that he uses on offense, he can use that on defense, right? He's a little bit more of a blitz player. He shouldn't be back down in drop coverages or things of that nature. So I think um, we can help them as well um, coming here. Yeah, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to the defense here in just a minute, and I am I I think there is a case for how the Montrez Harrell signing uh, can work out on the defensive end, and we're we're gonna talk about that. The last thing I want to say about the offensive end, though, is something that I've talked to, with you about several times, uh, because so we look at the uh, uh, the the Montrez Harrell and Dennis Schroeder um, signing as these two big six men that came in to join these two stars in L.A. And I think it's important to remember that the the Clippers kind of had a similar thing going on last year. They had Kawhi Leonard and they had Paul George, these two star ball handlers. And then they had these two six men and Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell. And one of the big reasons why that didn't work is they, I I thought that they, um, that the collective basketball IQ of the team was too low in the sense that too often Kawhi and Paul George would become very passive as all of the role players were were heavily involved in the game. And then when it came time for them to turn it on, they never really had much of a rhythm. Paul George in particular really struggled with this. And I think it's one of the big reasons why he was so hot and cold throughout the season. So while all of those things we just talked about are great on the offensive end, and I'm a big believer in everything that we just said, I still think it's very important that while LeBron and Anthony Davis are in the, on the floor, they remain heavily involved in the offense. Now, there, there, there's a way to do that. For instance, like uh, uh, when Dennis Schroeder is on the floor with Montrez Harrell, the actions need to be run with Montrez, but they also need to run with be run with Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis needs to get his touches because Anthony Davis in a rhythm is still going to be a more dominant offensive force than anything Montrez Harrell and Dennis Schroeder can hope to do. And the same thing goes for LeBron. So what are the, where, one of the biggest things they'll bring is just depth, the ability for them over the course of the 72-game season to generate offense, especially in nights where LeBron and AD are resting or if LeBron and AD stay in the low 30s in terms of their minutes per game. But at the end of the day, 
I still think it's very important to understand that this team will be at their best when LeBron and AD are very aggressive on the offensive end of the floor. And then having Dennis Schroeder and Montrezl Harrell and all these guys kind of play off of that to the best of their ability. I, th- I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, all right, so the defensive end. Mm-hmm. This is something that I have been confused by from not just Lakers Twitter, but from a lot of, uh, from one of the more common things that I've heard from Lakers Twitter is people say things like, oh, our defense might have gotten a little bit worse, but our offense got way better. Is one thing, right. or uh, particularly from a lot of people mm-hmm. in the uh, basketball analytic, uh, you know, and uh, basketball analysis that you'll see on Twitter from outside of the the Laker community, you'll see a lot mm-hmm. of things about how the loss of JaVale McGee and, and Dwight Howard are a loss of length and athleticism on the interior. You'll hear things right. like that, or you'll hear uh, about the loss of Avery Bradley, or you'll hear about you know Danny Green's positional defense, Danny Green's health defense, things along those lines, and how losing those things actually hurt their uh, uh, their uh, this team on the defensive end of the floor. So my question for you is, <laughs> relative to last year's Laker team, which I've said was the best defensive team in the league, because even though they didn't have a better defensive rating than Milwaukee, they were playing better offenses night in and night out. They finished with the third best defensive rating in the league. And they had absolutely dominant defensive performances against a bunch of really good offensive teams. Portland, Houston, Denver, really good offensive teams. And then obviously when they played the worst offense that they played, which was Miami, they really strangled them from time to time. So relative to that team, Right. How do you feel about this Laker defense? Well, I think I think sometimes we try to complicate things. I mean, I feel like the reason that Laker team was so dominant is because they have an Anthony Davis on their team. Like that's the, the versatility of Anthony Davis allows you to have the kind of defense they did. Now I think they do lose some with Dwight Howard. I think him and AD playing together as like a physical force was something that really helped the team last year. But looking at it with JaVale, he's a he's a rim protector, but he's a different kind of rim protector than Marcus All. I don't think you kind of I don't think you lose that. Um, I think what you gain in IQ, defensive IQ, and also Marcus Hall is more of like a straight ahead verticality defender. I think that's just as effective. There was a lot of times where JaVel would just try to block everything in sight. Um it would kind of lead to guards able to bait him at the rim um and things of like things like that. So I think they can keep it up. I think Danny Green's um wing defense was good. I think it fell off in the bubble. Um it was a lot worse going forward in the playoffs. Um and I think they've replaced that with Wes Matthews. I think he's a better um, on ball defender I think he's more similar to Avery Bradley kind of they kind of replaced that and then um, I think KCP showed that he can fill in that Danny Green role he chased guys off screens he's not as tall as Danny Green is but I think he can fill in and then off the bench Schroeder has good defensive metrics at least from looking at his numbers from last year Harrell obviously I think was just played in the wrong position um, that's still going to be seen but I think they can still play that way I think a little bit of their identity went out with Dwight Howard I think that was um a big part of the bench units he would come in and we can see if Harold can kind of do that. He's in the same mold, right? He likes to dominate with physicality. He likes to dominate by attacking the rim. Um, he screams after a lot of dunks, similar to how uh, Dwight Howard did. And uh, I know we laugh about that, but that was a part of the Lakers identity, right? When Dwight comes in and he gets offensive rebound and dunks it and it's screams. Yeah. The, the bench screams and it gets the team going. Um, so I think that's kind of how they see that similarly. And obviously Harold is, a much better offensive player. You can, like you said, you can throw in isolation, but looking at the defense, um, he's more of a switchable player. I think he can switch a lot more than Dwight could um, on the perimeter. So it's going to be interesting. I think they can still keep their defense um, afloat. I'm not sure if we'll get another LeBron defensive year as we did last year. So I think that'll be a part of it as well. I'm sure you'll speak to that, but 
um, yeah, I think they can still they can continue it from the season four. Yeah, so I think um, so. To, to to be clear, when it comes to there's a reason why uh, basketball analysts will be a little bit more pessimistic about the Laker defense as it pertains to what they lost at the center position. But as with any type of defense that you can bring to the table, as with any type of defender, there is a, a give and a take. So, for instance, like if you're a high IQ, low physical gift uh, defender. You bring a lot of like uh, uh, you bring a lot of like consistency in the sense that you're always in the right place at the wrong at the right place at the right at the right time. You less you make fewer mistakes. You give up fewer wide open shots. Right. But with physical limitations comes the 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 simple fact that really athletic offensive players can get high quality looks in isolation against you. Or in the case of a center at the rim, like. When you have a Marcus Saul type or a Montrez Harrell type, a guy who, an athlete who is slashing to the rim, experiences no hesitation in what he's thinking about when he's uh, going to the basket. Compared to the JaVale McGee, uh, Dwight Howard mold, where it's, there's like a little bit of a fear. There's a little bit of a, in the back of your head, this idea that, you know, I can't get sloppy around the basket. They'll send it into the third row. Right. And I, I do think that that matters without a doubt. I don't want to gloss over that and just make it seem like it's an apples to apples comparison because it's not. For the sure. truth of the matter is, is the downside of the JaVale McGee Dwight Howard experience is part of that equation as well. And that is that they had a little bit of a tendency to get out of position, to make silly fouls. JaVale McGee was always falling all over the place jumping out of his shoes against uh, a a weak pump fake or things along those lines, that kind of stuff goes out of the window with the Marcus all experience. And so that's from that standpoint, like I'm a believer that with the athleticism that Anthony Davis brings to the table with LeBron, who's actually a highly underrated backline defender and his ability uh, to rotate to the basket, jump completely vertical, not commit a foul and deter layups around the rim when you have that kind of stuff around the basket, the, uh, it gives you a little bit more flexibility with what you're doing with Marcus All. And most importantly, the Lakers, when they were at their best in the postseason, were not playing Dwight or JaVale. In the, in, in, uh, at the end of these games, when they were really strangling and putting these teams away, they weren't relying on those guys. So I'm looking at their defense. While they brought a certain element to the defense, it wasn't the only reason why they defended well. It was part of their entire scheme chasing guys off the three-point line, forcing them into Anthony Davis and LeBron, and just really good commitment and effort and habits. That's what actually put their defense together. And then, like you said before, I loved your comparison of of Wes Matthews to Avery Bradley because Wes Matthews is like the wing version of Avery Bradley. He's a little bit undersized, but he's extremely laterally quick, and he's very good at using his hands without getting called for fouls, which is like a – it's like a gift. It's like a, a magic ability that he has where, because I've gone against guys like this in my time playing where it feels like they're fouling you. Like you're just, you're trying to get around him and it's like, this dude's holding me in, in my space, but he never gets a call because there's just a natural gift in the way that he hand checks you and the way that he can kind of get his body in your way to where uh, it just never gets called. Uh, Andre Godala is another great example of someone like that, but Wesley yeah. Matthews, because he's a little bit taller and because he's a lot stronger he kind of mm-hmm. has that Avery Bradley effect against bigger wing offensive threats. And that's what I, what I like in that regard. But um, mm-hmm. what I think that 
while Danny Green was a little bit bigger and a little bit better off ball instinctually kind of being in the right spot as a help defender. Wesley Matthews is so much better on the ball that I think that it's kind of like a, a, a it's something that the Lakers can still scheme around and make it work. But at the end of the day, all of the core pieces that made their defense great, Alex Caruso, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, uh, someone in that Danny Green mold, which uh, Danny Green, Wesley Matthews, whatever you want to call it, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, all of those pieces are there. And right. no matter what, as long as the habits are still instilled and as long as they care enough, they should defend better than they did last year. Because especially since Rajon Rondo was another kind of weak link in the defense last year in terms of his right. consistency seen his effort. Dennis Schroeder is not a great defensive player, but he is a much better defensive player, especially in terms of what he brings athletically to the table. He's quicker, mm-hmm. he's got long arms, and he can be disruptive. So it comes down to the LeBron thing, which you met, which you mentioned. So right. as someone who's cheered for him his whole career, I am really interested in seeing what he's going to bring to the table this year from an effort standpoint. I think we'll know pretty early on. Uh, I think I think we'll be able to be make a more informed decision after we see him play a few games. That said, what makes me optimistic because of, there are a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. They, they're on such a quick turnaround. He's in year mm-hmm. eight. He's coming already at the top of the mountain. There's a little bit less motivation. The optimism for me comes from Anthony Davis and the uh, the new players that they brought to the table. A lot of the times when the Lake uh, when the Cavalier teams and the Miami Heat teams faded, when the Miami Heat team faded defensively in 2014, when the Cavaliers team faded defensively in 2017, it was mostly the same players. Mm-hmm. They basically brought back the same guys. So there was complacency because it was the same group. This is a very different Laker group. This Marcus Gasol being in that locker room. Dennis Schroeder being in that locker room, Montrez Harrell being in that locker room, Wesley Matthews being in that locker room, and Wes and Dennis and, and Trez have never won a title. Right. So you've got guys in that locker room have every, that have every reason to, uh, to want to attack this season in terms of their effort. Mm-hmm. And then the reason why I said Anthony Davis is this is a player who takes pride on the defensive end. This right. is a player, one of the few examples of a player in the NBA who's a star in the NBA who's better defensively than he is offensively. And so from, from that standpoint, like Anthony Davis, I believe, will have confrontations with LeBron as he fades at certain points in the season in terms of his defensive focus and effort. Right. That gives me optimism that the Laker defense in terms of their effort will be better than what it was. Right. And Montrezl Harrell isn't a quiet dude either, right? He's not going to just stand around and watch LeBron not try an offense, on defense. And yeah, like you said, Anthony Davis kind of keeps him accountable, right? He keeps him going and then like the quotes coming out from LeBron he doesn't sound like a guy who's trying to walk into the season like he sounds like a guy ready to go um and I think he knows the stakes he knows the chance he has to repeat get his like fifth fifth ring here so yeah he looks ready to go and I'm excited to see if he'll continue his defensive effort I'm not sure like he'll be every night like it was last season um I don't think that's um as necessary this year I think the talent that they have allows them to kind of ease into it a little more than last year. I think last year he was trying to prove a point um, and things like that. But yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think he'll be ready. He's ready to go. And, and two, and two really small things that I think will help too is one, I think at some point fans will rejoin the equation during the season. I think we'll see. Right. But if fans rejoin the, the equation, that's going to bring back some nostalgia from LeBron because he hasn't played in front of fans in forever. That will bring another competitive fire out of him. And, uh, and then secondly, uh, the strengths of the team being able to limit his minutes. 
you know, if you look at the 2018 Cavs, for instance, he was in a situation where so much was on his plate offensively, so much was on his plate and what he had to bring night to night for that team to win that he couldn't really, at least he thought that he couldn't really put that much energy and effort into the uh, into the defensive end of the floor. This is an entirely right. different situation. This team could be a championship contender if LeBron took 10 shots a game. So mm-hmm. from that standpoint, what, what's important with the LeBron experience here is keep his minutes down around 32, 33 a night, and then uh, have your new guys uh, 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 be hard on him when he slacks, and then he should have every reason to bring it. And then most importantly, like a lot of this falls on Vogel and him being that intense uh, authority figure that will demand a lot out of these guys. And I, th- and I think that that uh, makes me a little more optimistic. So Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So uh, what do you make of the Kyle Kuzma conundrum? <laughs> yeah, I think I asked you about this. So I was like, I wanted to kind of discuss it. Um, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> the <clears throat> the Kyle Kuzma thing is interesting because <clears throat> sorry, I think he he's seen like differently online than he is. He's viewed like his perception on Twitter or like with fans is so different than I think how the front office views him. The front office, the, like how we view him, is just like you know a, a average role player who kind of hits some shots sometimes. You know, defense here and there. I think the front office front office views him as a player they've developed for four years. Right, they put time and effort into developing into a winning player. And that's what he became last year. He became a winning player. Um, he wasn't great. He didn't shoot great from three, but, you know, he defended well enough to play 23 minutes a game in the playoffs, right? There were players who got benched. JaVale was unplayable in the playoffs. Dwight Howard played one series, basically, against Denver. So Kyle Kuzma averaging 23 minutes a game, I think, matters in the playoffs. He's not perfect. He's obviously not worth the money he thinks he's going to get around $20 million a year. But obviously his off-court stuff is what it is. It's not defendable. I mean, there's nothing I can say about his stuff that he does off the court. He opens the door to all the criticism for that, but just looking on the court, <laughs> he, you know, he welcomes that. I think, um, I think it's interesting how he goes about it, but you know, that's he, neither here and there. Just looking at on the court, he defends wings and this team needs more wing defenders, right? It's kind of somehow it's more guard and forward heavy. Um, so I think who's is going to play a role if he can hit his, he shot like 50% from the corners um, all uh, everywhere else, he kind of struggled. But even just doing that, staying in the corners, hitting threes. Um, I, looking back, watching all the bubble playoff games, I forgot how many like big shots he hit. He had a bunch of like uh, run stopping shots. Like the other team would go on like a fifteen four run, and he hit like a huge three to kind of send the tide. And obviously, those shots um, don't really get remembered. Uh, you remember like the no look pass that he tries in a playoff game that just is nonsensical. There's no point in it. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. Those are things that get glorified um, online, but. Like, that's where I think it is. that He's obviously uh, not a great player, but um, he's not terrible either. And I think that's how the Lakers see him. He, he was drafted by this front office. He's the last player on this team that was that first draftee, right? He's the longest drafted player on the team. And I think that's how he's seen. I remember last year people wanted to trade him and Danny Green to New York for Marcus Morris. And I just thought that was crazy because I thought there was no way the Lakers were just going to salary dump him. Like, there was just no chance that was happening. Um, so I think yeah, I, I think, may have been one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, I think I was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> but um, and there was another one for like Bielicha, I think, in uh, Sacramento, um, not Bogdan, but Bielicha. And um, yeah, so I think that's where I think that's where the team stands. And obviously, he's going to want money in next offseason, which makes sense. Um, I don't think the Lakers are going to pay him anything other than 
maybe the five, six million that he's paid right now. Um, but obviously he wants more than that, and that's fine. I just think there's no reason to just throw him to another team, as a lot of Lakers Twitter seems very ready to do um, at the first side of a deal. Well, I think it, for me, it entirely comes down to what you can get back. I mean, right. acknowledging the reality of the situation, I think, is important, which is that you're probably going to lose Kyle Kuzma this summer because uh, the sure. reality is is just look at what we saw this last offseason and teams throwing big, fat contracts at players that are what we would consider to be average. You know what I mean? Like, right. I get, like I was pretty excited about potentially bringing Dan- Danilo Gallinari to the table this this summer, but the reality is is – Danilo Gallinari is only marginally better than than Kyle Kuzma and is probably an inferior defensive player, and yet he's playing for all that money in Atlanta. So right. the, the reality is, is like you're going to lose Kyle Kuzma this summer unless you want to completely hand, handicap yourself in the salary cap moving forward. So then the question becomes: in the short term, just right. this, just this season, uh, it, who do you ha- who can you get for Kyle Kuzma that could be potentially be better than Kyle Kuzma um, uh, within the scope of this season? Because the reality is, is whoever you get back, you're going to have similar contract problems. If you bring back a bigger salary than Kyle Kuzma and, ha- and he has multiple years left on the deal, it handicaps you moving forward. If you bring back a person who's an expiring deal, now you have the question mark about whether or not you lose that person for nothing. So okay. it's, all, it's all relative to the deal. But the the, the bottom line is. What is Kyle Kuzma right now? He's an average NBA player. He is a below-average ball handler. He's a below-average shooter, and he's a below-average basketball IQ. But what he does bring to the table is he's, he's got a lot of size, and he's got a lot of confidence. So on any given night, uh, it's, mind you, there's more bad than good, but on any given night, he can give you a significant scoring pop. And then, like you said, he's capable of hitting big shots because he's not scared of the moment in, right. in that regard. So uh, from the, from that standpoint, like that's, that's what he is right now. He's your, the eighth or ninth best player, seventh or eighth or ninth best player on this team. So the question becomes, if you can potentially find some front office around the league who values Kyle Kuzma enough to give you a legitimate asset, something that you can either quickly parlay into something else or something, somebody that can help you more than Kyle Kuzma is in this particular season, I think you've got to pull the trigger on it because I do. I, the reality is, is like they can have as many conversations with Kuz as they want. Rob Palinka can tell him as many, you know, weird mythological tales as, as he wants from books that he's read or eccentric, uh, whatever's. But the, the bottom line is, is Kyle Kuzma is going to come to the table with an offer sheet next year that's signed from, you know, Sacramento Kings or some, some, some stupid like that. That's going to be a four year, $80 million contract. And and the Lakers are not going to to sign that offer sheet unless they are a hundred percent sure that no star in the next four years is coming to join LeBron and AD in LA, which I just don't think they would handicap themselves like that. So accept the reality of the situation. He's an average NBA player. You're going to lose him for uh, for a big fat offer sheet this summer. So just take it on a deal by deal basis. And if you see something that is worthwhile, jump on it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can also like see a scenario. I know this will kind of drive fans mad, I'm sure. But like, let's say just a scenario I'm throwing out. Let's say the Lakers win back to back. I see the Lakers giving him like a Jordan Clarkson deal. Like, I don't know if you remember the Lakers signed Jordan Clarkson to like a four year, 50 million yeah, deal. 450, yeah, like which that, I think yeah. was a good deal at the time. People thought of it as kind of a little overpaid, but I mean, it was it was a guy that they developed who they saw getting better and they just invested that. Now I don't think Kuz would take that. I think he wants a lot more than that, but I can see like if he doesn't get any offers, like say he shoot, he has another season where he shoots really poorly from three or, you know, he just doesn't get offer sheets from teams like that. Cause I think $20 million is 
a lot of money from for any team to pay Kyle Kuzma a year. I don't care how much they believe in him. I think that's a lot of money. So I could see that as well. But yeah, you're right. They'll probably lose him next year. I'm sure they'll shop him at the deadline. Um, I think he understands that. Um, I think they try to get maybe Bogdanovich for him this summer. Um, that kind of fell through as well. But I think you're right. That's 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 just what he is right now. And I think there's like a line that he's seen as like a super trash player or like, you know, there's some, there's people who think he's, he should be starting as well. There's like that section of people exist. So there's like a fine line where he fits. And obviously his social media kind of tears that line apart. Um, but um, yeah, just looking on the court, um, he is who he is, like you said. Well, likability is a big part of what shapes our opinion on these players. I mean, like right. I, if, when I'm trying to be a really unbiased, honest basketball analyst, I still think James Harden is like the seventh or eighth best player in the world. <laughs> right. But I hate that guy. And like it's just everything that he does drives me nuts. And in my opinion, like when I'm ranking NBA players, I want so badly to put him lower. And it's a similar thing with the, the Kyle Kuzma thing. He does so many unlikable things right. that it, it causes a lot of Laker fans to kind of gloss over. Which And you you did a really good job of laying out all of the good that he brings to the table. He is a right. good NBA role player. <clears throat> but the one thing that would make me nervous is even at that four-year, mm-hmm. $60 million type of number, four-year, $50 million, even mm-hmm. if uh, – who's the brand he's with? Puma? Is it Puma? Yeah, Puma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if Puma was like, hey, listen, under the table – take this LA deal instead and we'll give you an extra 5 million a year right. on the side, you know, or something like that. Like the reality is, is like, even at that number, even at four for 50, four for 15 a year, it still kind of limits your flexibility when it comes to other stars. So from that standpoint, I would want if as a, like, like as a Laker front office person analyzing that situation, yeah. I would want to see a little more out of Kyle Kuzma just understanding it's kind of similar to the Montrezl Harrell thing. The Montrezl Harrell thing at the numbers, uh, right. just being at the numbers makes amazing sense. Paying 9 million a year for a guy who's going to get you 18 points a game and, you know, brings a lot to the table offensively. It makes mm-hmm. it's a no brainer. But if you actually look at the, the hard cap and the fact that you can draw a direct line that costing you Avery Bradley and costing you Dwight Howard, it's a little bit more complicated. And that's the way that I'd look at it with Kyle Kuzma is if you, if you want to bring in a third star, then you have to understand that the rest of your roster is basically going to be veteran minimum contracts. And right. maybe guys that you have bird rights on, like, like uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope. So bringing Kyle Kuzma back kind of does affect the long-term strategy uh, mm-hmm. of the Lakers. So it's something, it's something to keep in mind. It's not just about, oh, he deserves $15 million. Right. It's about what you're potentially losing mm-hmm. as the dominoes fall further from that deal but no matter what like let's give him another chance like as is the case with all this stuff like this is going to be his second full season playing under this type of role with this type of talent give him another chance to see what he can bring to the table all right lastly real quickly before i get you out of here what is your uh prediction for the lakers this season both in their regular season performance and what you expect from them in the playoffs oh uh so I still think they come out pretty well. I don't think they're as dominant in the regular season as they are last year. I expect a lot of more resting, not as much rest as like games off, but I'm expecting them to go as hard as they did last year. Um, I still expect them to get the one seed. I think their talent level is enough to get the one seed um, in the regular season. And I still having them uh, going back to back. I think uh, when you have a title team that got better, I think it's only right. You give them the benefit of the doubt, um, give them a chance to repeat and I think they've gotten all the tools they have to repeat here. Um, I'm not sure 
I'm not sure what's stopping them. I mean, I think every contender has either got worse or stayed pretty marginally as they were, um, depending how good you think uh, Serge Ibaka is. Um, but, I mean, other than that, I feel like every contender kind of stayed the same. Um, so, yeah, I think repeat they repeat here. Yeah, so I've gone back and forth as it pertains to the regular season uh, because of the LeBron thing, because of the classic issues that repeating teams deal or teams defending the title deal with. And I kind of fall back to kind of the, the 2001 Lakers model, which mm-hmm. for 2001, the infusion was Kobe's growth. He got so much better than he was in the year 2000. But the reality was is it wasn't so much about them having to deal with apathy on their end. It was the fact that the rest of the league just wasn't capable of hanging with them. And in my opinion, all of the contenders got worse. The Warriors, I mean, what what we expected from the Warriors got worse. I think that got worse. I think Utah is more or less the same. Like uh, the Clippers, it's hard to say, but I think they have the same fatal flaws that they had uh, uh, coming into last season. Dallas added stuff, but not enough to really be a difference maker, in my opinion. So the reality is, is, by making the moves the Lakers made, they massively increased their margin for error on a night-to-night basis. Adding players as talented as Dennis Schroeder, Montrezl Harrell, and, and, and Marcus Saul, Wesley Matthews, those guys make it so it's a little bit harder for you to lose night-to-night. And when I, when I think the talent gap has now increased between what the Lakers had, uh, Lakers had between them and who, any of their opponents on any given night, that gap has grown. And so, in my opinion, it'll be a little bit harder for them to lose. And then I think, just in general, the the back in the stadiums thing, the infusion of players who haven't won a championship onto this roster, which is different from your uh, stereotypical uh, defending champion, I think all of those things will keep LeBron engaged. And I actually think the Lakers will end up with the one seed, which I think is something that a lot of analysts disagree with. And I think I, I really do think that it's it's shaping up for a season where the Lakers could win at about a 60 to 65 win pace right. and uh and go into the reg- uh, go into the postseason with uh with the number 1 overall seed. And so as far as the playoffs go, I more or less expect what I saw last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's a single team in the league that can take them to 6 outside of the uh the Los Angeles Clippers. I've talked about this at length. I mm-hmm. think they're the only team in the league that is really built for to to have some matchup advantages against the Lakers. What right. they bring to the table with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard as mid-range scores is a, a, they attack a specific gap in the Laker defense and the way that it's structured, right. and uh, and they have some size now with Ibaka and and Zubac that can confront some of the size that the Lakers have. I really do think that they have the capability of at least making the Lakers sweat a little bit, but I predict something similar. A you know, four or five game first round, four or five game second round, a little bit of a battle with the Clippers, and then a five game NBA Finals type of series. That's that's what I'm predicting at this point. Yeah, my main kind of thing to look at is um, Anthony Davis's jumper. His mid range jumper obviously was insane, KD level in the playoffs. Um, I'm not expecting it to stay at that that rate, but if it can even be close to that, I'm not sure how a team really beats this team. Um, they look pretty unguardable. When AD has his jumper going, I think he was hitting like 35% on mid-range pull-ups, and they were still winning at like a 65-win pace in the regular season. So in the playoffs, that jumped to like 45 50%. Um, he was hitting them off the dribble, and if that's real, then you could shut this season down because I don't think there's <laughs> anything really going to happen if, if he's still hitting those um, at that rate. Him getting better <clears throat> as yeah. he's entering in his prime and dealing with better spacing than he's ever had. Right. Con- continuity with uh, with his core role players 
there there's like this scenario where you could just see this, you know, Giannis from last year type of MVP campaign from Anthony Davis, which would be really fun to watch. Um, and because there were there were some legitimate things on that Laker roster last year that constrained some of his strengths. And so I think it'll be cool to see what he does. But anyway, so I've had you for over an hour now. So uh, I appreciate you taking time uh, after a long day of work to come hang out and, and talk uh, and offer your expertise. As always, I really, really appreciate you doing this. To all of you who have tuned in and listened, I would imagine that Raj will be kind enough to join me several more times over the course of the season. So you'll be seeing lots of this. Um, but thanks again, man. I really appreciate you coming on. No, thanks for having me, man. It's funny to see you and like all Lakered out now. So it's like, <laughs> well, it's funny I mean, as, you can, as you can see, there's his logo. This is yeah, yeah. I've actually had for a while. I have a lot of NBA gear. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, it's great to be here. All right, man. Have a good night. I'll talk to you later. Yeah. All right, you too. Thank you, bro. Bye.